Welcome to the Curator Salon podcast. I'm Geeta Joshi and today I'm talking to Carrie Brummer. Welcome, Carrie. Thank you so much for having me today. It's great to talk to you. Uh, we're going to be talking about your project with the U.S. National Archives. How did that all start? I was looking for royalty-free images of Frida Kahlo. She's been so iconic, and this was probably three or four years ago now, and I, I really felt called to start portraying women and looking at women who have been noted historically as kind of breaking norms and taking leadership. I was very drawn to these figures. So I was looking for some image of her that I might have the rights to use. And so I started digging around the U.S. National Archives. And while I found some images of her and some other women who were notable, I started to fall into kind of this rabbit hole. There's so much imagery available in the archives. And I happened upon this group of images of women from the 1940s. They were mostly cabbies. And I realized they were being documented because of the shift in gender norms of the time. And they just had these like wonderful smiles. There was an optimism to the photographs. Um, they were, you know, dressed in training and, and in cabs, you know, posing. And I was just kind of caught up in their energy that I could feel in the photos. And that's when I actually noticed that while they were labeled by their new careers, not a single one had their names included in the documentation. And that was it. That was the moment that I knew it didn't matter about Frida anymore or Amelia Earhart or any of the other images I found. I knew I needed to focus on these women and give them time through my art. So how did you then use uh, the images that you found? I basically printed out a bunch of them and then started playing around and I did some small scale drawings and was trying to play with composition. And at the same time, I was also still trying to figure out my own voice. I was still trying to figure out what I really wanted to stick to in terms of medium. And I had multiple interests. I like working in embroidery. I love gold leaf, but I also paint in acrylic. And there was something about these images that I realized I could combine all of these things together. And it would allow me to, again, give time and value to these women in a way that I felt that they were not given in this kind of documentation. Were all the images taken in one city or were they across multiple places? I couldn't quite tell. I did, as I did more research or kind of looked more carefully at the images, I found that some of the medallions actually said Salt Lake City for the cabbie medallions on their clothes, but not all of them were from Salt Lake City. Um, I also had some photographers and uh, the location was not labeled. So I can only speak to a few of the images for sure that they were in Utah. So how did you choose which uh, ladies to represent in your artwork? It really was intuitive process. I just kind of picked the images that really spoke to me and that I felt like, you know, they had something to share. And that dictated a lot of the creative process as well. In fact, I pretty much let them tell me what they wanted for color, for design, where they wanted the gold leaf. I, I'm a very A-type personality. And sometimes that controlling orderly nature gets in the way of my creative process. I even had a professor in university tell me I murder my paintings because I overworked them. So I know that that's something I have to deal with as a creative. So by asking my painting or the, or the girl and the, the woman in the painting, what do you want next? And just sitting there, it allows me a little more freedom and flexibility instead of pre-planning everything and assuming I know what's going to make the painting best 
before I even finish it, you know, before I even start it, really. And are you working on one at a time or do you have a few on the go at any given time? Great question. I have to have multiple pieces going on at once. It allows me to feel a sense of play in the work, especially when things get tough or I feel stuck in a piece. I don't like sitting there and waiting until I you know, hear that answer. I like being able to play with different pieces so that I, I'm still producing. So how long have you been working on this? Because you said you first visited the archives about three or four years ago. I started right when I found the images, but I kind of took a break. And I think part of me was actually a little scared that maybe maybe I couldn't do it or, or was my skill in the right place. And so I, um, I also run a program called Artist Strong. It's an online community for artists. And my background is art education. And I've always loved teaching. But it was kind of at that point when I realized perhaps I was letting my teaching become a crutch and a way to avoid the work I wanted to do. I, I feel a shift in my work doing this stuff and I feel like I'm playing bigger and, and that these stories are valuable to be shared. But it was also a little scary knowing that I was, I was up-leveling and, and there was some discomfort around that. So I would say I, I really seriously committed to the works about a year ago. But there was kind of this in-between of drawing and doing a little bit and working slowly on some of these pieces here and there. But I was treating it more like a hobby when I started. And now you've got so serious, you've got a show coming up as well. Exactly. So uh, I would say uh, end of last year, I applied and found out that the city of Ottawa, where I currently live, they actually have several galleries open and you can apply to have your work exhibited there and a, a jury of peers chooses the work for the shows. And I was very fortunate that people like the work that has already been started and Again, it feels very affirming that I get to now share these women. Um, part of the final process of the work, too, is I actually give them a name or, or they tell me what their name is. And so I just feel like now I get to present these women and their stories uh, to a larger public. It's quite interesting because when people look at things in archives, they often want to kind of delve back into the history, particularly when it comes to photographs, you know, really trying to identify the women or putting out like now we have social media putting out a call to find out if it was somebody's grandmother and things like that. Have you um, resisted that side of it or that was just never something that you felt drawn to do? That's a great question. I, I didn't really feel drawn to it. And what's happened and what's been interesting is the people who are following my work, they're sharing the stories of their grandmothers. And it's been so powerful. And it, it makes me actually quite emotional. Even just yesterday, someone on Instagram private messaged me a story about their grandmother who was working in a factory during the war. She lost several fingers and then she was pretty much kicked out of the job as soon as men came back home. But then she started her own business and was this thriving leader of, you know, leader and, and how this woman is a heroine to her. And so seeing people share these stories, I almost feel like if I found the specific history of these women, people couldn't, couldn't connect in the same way. So you've only recently moved to Canada, because I know you were living in different places around the world, and you were talking about your community. Can you tell us a bit more about that and how, what you mean when you say it was a bit of a crutch for you? Sure. For nine years, I lived in the Middle East. I moved there um, 
pretty much out of university. I had three years of teaching in the States, and then I moved to Dubai, United Arab Emirates, and I lived there for six years. And then I moved to Muscat, Oman, which is adjacent to the UAE. Not as many people know that country. And what I found while I was over there, I always knew I wanted to be working on my art. And while I was in Dubai, I, I participated in group shows, but I was still trying to figure out my voice, but I also felt somewhat disconnected from the art world. And I started blogging as a way to share because I felt like I wasn't doing enough in the classroom and I wasn't reaching enough people. And there were so many adults who had negative associations with art or, or felt blocked as creatives. And so I felt this need to share. Um, but what I found in doing that is I realized it was really also this this fuel for me to have like-minded people around me. And it really started forming when I was in Muscat, Oman. And that's when I really dug in um, and, and developed my community called Artists Strong. And teaching has always been important to me and always will be part of my life. But it's funny because, you know, I mentioned earlier that it became this responsibility that sometimes made me not make art because it was easier to serve the people in my community than dig into the questions and curiosity I have about finding my voice and figuring out what I wanted to say. Um, and yet, you know, I realized it. And, and part of the reason I did is this community has grown. Um, there's thousands of people in the Facebook group and, and on the online um, through my email newsletter. And what I realized is if I really want to show up for the people in this, this community I have, I also have to do the work. I have to be doing the things I preach. Otherwise, I'm an imposter. So it really was this affirming moment of, you know, realizing and catching myself about feeling like, okay, I can't just always choose to serve my community. I also have to do this work. And, and in doing that work, I'm also helping them see the journey of of one path to artistic success, um, that, that you can choose whichever path you want, but at least you can see I'm trying to do my own work to find what success means to me as an artist too. What's interesting to me about your journey is that you started as an artist, built a community to support other artists and educate them, and then waited for the right project to come along, even if you didn't know that you were actually waiting for it, but a project that resonated with you so deeply that you couldn't not pursue it before you gave yourself the title of artist again? It's interesting because especially when I was teaching art, there were people who would say some people are just art teachers and some people are practicing artists who also are teachers. And there's kind of a judgment around all of that, that one is better than the other, or you should be working towards a certain label. And I have a very achievement oriented nature and and I think I also have always been driven to please others of and especially an authority and so when I can kind of pick up on cues like that sometimes I'd spend time trying to please or address those kinds of achievements without actually asking myself if that was something I wanted and I just think part of it's been growing older and not caring as much and uh also really being more in tune with myself as a person and really listening to those little cues when I have an intuitive hit that this is something worth investigating. 
I mean, I did, I started this, this group of works, as I told you several years ago, but then I stopped. It was almost, I, I did, I felt this fear around the, well, what if I do achieve the way I want to, uh, which sounds kind of silly. But what really happened is um, a good friend of mine who uh, lives in Scotland, her name's Nikki, she and I were Skyping and having a chat and she's an artist as well. And I was telling her the story of this work and she's like, Carrie, why did you stop? You have to keep working on this. And it's like she lit a fire under me. She reminded me why I cared about these, these, these stories. And I started jump. I just immediately started painting again and embroidering into the works and it just flowed. And that's, I mean, that's been it since I just haven't stopped. So you said the work is a combination of uh, various media and uh, when we were talking before, you referenced kind of um, crafts or skill sets that were traditionally taken up by women. So have you had to sort of go back to school to learn certain crafts or did you always have these skill sets? I grew up with a mother who is totally involved in the arts. She's a dabbler. She She's like learned how to weave baskets. She could help like refurbished furniture. She did embroidery. She painted on glass. She did acrylic painting. I mean, anything that you can think of in terms of an artist or craft medium, this woman has done. And so anytime she'd try something, I wanted to try it too. So I was exposed at a very young age to embroidery and beading and things like that. Um, so I always had that interest and I'd been doing these on the side, I'd been drawing mandalas as a way to relax and kind of meditate. And my mom was like, well, why don't you embroider those? And I was like, why don't I embroider these? That's a great idea. And so that led me back to my embroidery work. And I was doing that at the same time that I fell upon the images and then art in the archives. And so that was one reason working with the embroidery was a natural step. I was already doing it. I, I've been doing a lot of basic stitching. It's called satin stitching, but um, it can be very time consuming. Um, and so that that led to me knowing I wanted to use the embroidery. Um, I think of embroidery as like women's work traditionally, you know, that's something that women were always historically doing in the home. And I love the idea that it's also kind of in the fine art world labeled as decorative, um, again, kind of fluff or something that's not as valuable, which again, I think ties to the story of these women being valuable in the label of their career, but not actually documenting their names. And that also at the same time, I was living in the Middle East and touring a lot of mosques, being drawn to a lot of pattern and color. And that I think influenced my use of gold leaf. I was very interested all of a sudden in, in playing with gold leaf. So I just looked online for some tutorials and started playing. And I, yeah, that's, that's how kind of all three media came to get mediums came together. Um, and gold leaf again, I think can be labeled as craft. And we, we know in the fine art world that sometimes people have a judgment of, over media that is labeled craft. And so I like, again, that question of what is valuable, what is worth our time, and what's worth showing. And I, I like the layers of the, the media that I've selected also reflecting the story of these women. Yeah, and all the layers of discussion that that then prompts as well. So the show in Ottawa, when is that happening? Well, I install on November 28th, which is American Thanksgiving, actually. And then the grand opening is December 1st, and it's going to be from 1 to 3 p.m. at the Shankman Arts Center, which is in the east side of Ottawa. And it goes until January 9th, I think, of 2020. And that's a solo show. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
So how many pieces have you completed for this show now you've got a deadline and, and how many do you think you still need to produce before opening night? I have so much work to do still, but I have two paintings for sure finished and then I have five or six drawings done that are ready for display. So what I'm doing is when I chose the gallery, because there are several galleries in the city available, you could put kind of a priority and rating of which, which location you'd prefer. I honestly chose the smallest location I could find because the embroidery is very time consuming. One of the pieces I did, the embroidery alone was over 200 hours and it's maybe 16 by 20 inches, 40 by 50 centimeters. Uh, so that's a whole lot of work to make. So what I'm doing is <clears throat> they gave you a map and I'm, I still have yet to do this, but I'm going to actually use graph paper and be old school about it and, and kind of map out the actual space and then uh, put the works that are finished in their proportion in the space so that I can judge how many more works I need. And that's going to dictate how many pieces I create. And that's something I hope that more artists understand is you don't have to have the whole show ready to apply and put yourself out there. You can have, if you can show that you're consistent and you're serious about your work, people who review your application are going to take you seriously and you'll have the time to finish the work. Uh, so that's also why I applied for the last time slot of the year. I wanted to have the whole year to get as much work as I could in. And I'm also going to attend some of the openings that other artists have at the venue so that I can take some video and also really have a sense of the physical space and see how they also um, host the event. Because even though the city provides the venue, we're responsible for hosting. So I want to see if they cater and things like that. So that'll kind of let me scope everything out to make sure I'm making wise decisions for everyone who attends my opening. Yeah, the research is such an important part of it, isn't it? But like, that's a really good point that you make about, you know, sort of applying for things before you're, you have a full body of work ready to show. I think a lot of, um, you know, people worry about that. But oftentimes, you know, the scheduling means that you don't have to do anything, you know, you're not going to be showing next week anyway. And it's accountability, which so many of us can need, right, to actually follow through on the body of work that we're interested in in producing. If you have a deadline and you know people are going to be showing up and you want to maintain positive relationships with the people who have said yes to you, you're going to show up and finish that artwork. <laughs> yeah, deadlines are always good. How do you generally respond to deadlines? I am pretty good. I'm disciplined. So that's not a huge issue for me. There's a book called Better Than Before, uh, written by this woman named Gretchen Rubin. And she found four tendencies for accountability. And uh, one is very rare, and it's called Upholder. And it's someone who, with either internal or external um, expectations, they can meet them. And I test it as an upholder. So I am one of these rare unicorns who can set goals for themselves and just do them. But most people are something called an obliger, which means that if they want to go to the gym, they, they need to know their friend is going to and that their friend's relying on them to show up for them to show up too. And so uphold, um, obligers are really good with deadlines. And so that's, that's one reason I do note this is I know that, especially in my own community, I have lots of obligers and, and having those deadlines can be very powerful. Oh, that's fantastic. All right, I will put a link to the book in the show notes as well. Uh, Carrie, where can people find you online? You can find me in two places. I have the website for my artwork and the body of work that I'm working on, and it's carriebrummer.com. And then if you're interested in learning more about the online community I've created, that is artiststrong.com. 
Brilliant. Thanks so much for spending time with me this afternoon. It's been great talking to you. Thank you, Gita, for your time and for having me on your show.